Our scripture lesson is found in the Gospel of Mark, reading from chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark, the closing paragraph of the chapter, beginning from verse 34. And if you were here last night, you will note a similarity. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life from my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The passage here takes place at one of those pivotal points in the ministry of Jesus. It comes, if you know the chapter, immediately after Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus had spent the better part of three years now with his disciples. He had demonstrated his miracle-working power, and he had taught them over the course of those three years. They had known him very intimately, and now he takes them on a trip into the north alone where he can spend time with them, and he turns and says, Whom do men say that I am? And Peter says, Are they answer? Some say that you're John the Baptist, some say that you're Elijah, some say that you're one of the prophets. And he turns to Peter and says, or turns to them and says, but whom do you say that I am? And Peter answers and says, you are the Christ. Then it was that Jesus began to speak to them about the fact that he must go to Jerusalem. He has brought them now to the place where they know who he is. And now he can speak to them about the mysteries of his mission. And he can speak to them about the secret of what he came to do, of his passion, of his death, and of his resurrection. And he can speak to them about what it really means to be a follower of him. And in this passage, as nowhere else in the entire Gospel of Mark, he spells out now what, it is, what is necessary if a man is to be a follower of his. It's as if he were saying, Peter, James, John, you disciples, now that you know who I am, and really believe in me, now here is what it's going to take on your part if you are going to be a follower of mine. If you want to save your life, you will lose it. But if you are willing to lose your life for my sake and the, and the message that I have come to bring, then you will save it. There's really no profit in saving your life if you're going to lose your soul. And he says that really is what is at stake. So there, in that intimate moment, he spelled out to them the demands of discipleship. And they really are staggering, aren't they? I'm glad he didn't tell them that the first day that he called them. If he had told them that the first day that they began to follow him, they would have left him and said, we can't go this route. And I'm glad he didn't tell me that the first day that he called me and the first day that I began to follow him. Because if he had, I think it would have staggered me. I don't know that I would have been able, certainly if I understood what was being demanded, 
I do not know that I would have been able in my own strength to have even said, Lord, there's a possibility for me. But he spent three years with them now. They now know who he is. And he says, all right, if you belong to me, this is what it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your life. It will mean that you must give up possession of yourself. You must forfeit your life if you are to gain mine. And that's difficult. There's some people who have that kind of confrontation thrown at them immediately when they first hear the claims of Christ. I have a friend who works with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He is in the Michigan area, Keith Hunt. And Keith was telling me once about a, a fellowship meeting that he had in his home one evening with international students. And in that group was a student who came from a land where to be a Christian meant that you were became an outcast, you lost your political status, and the chances were that you might very well lose your life. That man moved among Keith's guests that night, and at the end of the evening, he turned to Mr. Hunt, and he said, thank you for your gracious hospitality. I'm very interested in Christianity. I really would like to become a Christian. I've watched these other young people, those that are Christians, and they have something I don't have. I'd like to be a Christian. What do I have to do to be a Christian? And the boy looked at him, or he, Keith Hunt looked back at him and said, well, first thing you have to do is give your life to Christ and give it without reservation. Give it totally and completely. The young man looked at him and began to weigh that, and he said, oh, I don't think I could ever do that. And Keith Hunt said, you know, in a moment I looked back at him and said, well, if you ever decide that you can, I'd be delighted to know. And he said, the fellow walked out and went on his way. He said, when I crawled in bed that night, my conscience bothered me a bit. I wondered if I'd made it too tough. And I wondered if I should not have coaxed him a bit and tried to persuade him. But he said, I had not. If I should have, I had lost my opportunity. And so he said, I went to sleep, trusting him to the hands of the Lord. He said the next morning, about 6.15, much to his dismay, his telephone, his uh, doorbell rang. And he said, I grabbed a jacket, and he said, uh, I went to the door, and he said, there stood my international student friend. He said his hair was disheveled. It was obvious he had not slept all night. And he looked at Keith, and Keith invited him in, and he looked at him and said, what's the trouble? And the fellow said, I can't take it any longer. If that's what it takes to be a Christian, I'm ready to pay that price. Now, that really is what it's all about. It doesn't matter how God deals with you, somewhere in your life there has to come that place where you make the break. You let God cut you loose, and you lose your life, and you, 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 you give it totally to him. Now, as I said, that's not easy. And we're fools if we, we're wrong if we try to present it to people as something easy. It cannot come without a massive psychological jar in a man's soul. Because really, it's a bit like committing suicide. And it is seldom easy for a person to take his own life. He usually has to be in some great extremity. And then even in that great extremity where life itself doesn't seem worthwhile, 
It's a very normal thing that after a person has started the process of suicide, he wants to stop it. Now, Marilyn Monroe can swallow her pills, but the problem is keeping them down without calling a doctor. And you remember she died with her hand on the telephone. We don't die easily. We don't give up our lives easily. I remember I never learned to swim. Can't swim much now, but I never learned to swim any until I was an adult. I was in my 30s. I remember a friend of mine told me, he said, Dennis, you ought to learn to swim. You ought to learn to swim at least a little. And he said, I, good teacher, I can teach you how to do that. And I said, well, if you can teach me, I'd like to learn. So he took me out in a pond and uh, he explained all about it to me. He said, anybody as fat as you shouldn't have any problem swimming at all. He said, you know, you've studied physics. And he said, if you take the specific density of water and take the specific density of Dennis Kinlaw, Dennis Kinlaw's not as heavy as water, and if you'll put him in water, he'll float. And if that's so, then there's no problem, really, with learning to swim. Now, you just use your, move your arms a bit the right way and your legs a bit the right way, and you can just move right along, because really, you're too light to really sink if you'll give the water a chance. And so uh, I said, oh, that's beautiful. Uh, guarantee like that, no problem. And so he said, all right, just stretch out here in the water. And I remember that uh, I started to do that, and he said, but you can't do it unless you take your feet off the bottom. And I said, but if I take my feet off the bottom, I'll go under. And he said, no, you remember I gave you a physics lesson on the specific density of water and the specific density of Kinlaw, and if you put them together, the Kinlaw floats. I said, yeah, I know that. But if I take my feet off the bottom, I'll sink. And he said, no, you didn't hear me, did you? So we went through it again. So I said, really? And he said, yeah, that's for sure. So you can count on that. So I stretched out in the water and I tried. And he said, well, it's good to get one foot off the water, but off the floor. But if you're going to swim, you're going to have to get the other one off too. And I remember we were in water so deep, you know, and I thought, man, I'll never forget how hard it was just to cut loose and trust the water. And you know, that's the way it is. It is not easy to trust Christ. It's easy to verbalize about it, but I'm not talking about verbalizing now. I'm talking about cutting your securities and letting go to where if he doesn't take you, you're done. Now, that isn't easy. But you know, really, there's some reasons why it's very reasonable. And there's some reasons why a person ought not to find that too impossible a demand. Just like my friend looked at me and explained to me physics, there's some things in the spiritual world that are just as real that make it very reasonable for a person to give his life to Christ and trust him. Let me mention three. There are three basic things that any man, sensible man, will say that he believes about God, and yet most of us have difficulty turning that mental faith into living faith. Easy to say it, Another thing to do it. If I were to ask you if you believe that God was love, most of you would say very quickly, oh yes, of course, that's the one thing we know about God. We know that beyond anything else, that God really is love. Well now, if he's love, do you think he's ever going to hurt you? And do you think he's ever going to ask you to do anything that really is damaging to you? Do you really believe that a God who loves you will ever ask anything of one of his children that would even really seriously threaten him? 
I know one thing about being a parent. The greatest desire that you have is the well-being of the children that God has given to you. And he's an infinitely better parent than we are. And he loves with a greater love than ours. He loves with a perfect love. And he never makes a demand that is not a demand of love. And his purpose is our well-being. Harry Denman was in a revival and preached and invited young people to give their lives for Christian service. And there was a young woman that came and knelt, and she wept and boohooed around, and he came and knelt in front of her, and she saying, the Lord wanted her to go to Africa. And he said, she, he said, well, then you should go. And so she said, yes, but if I go, I know I'll die. And he looked down and said, honey, God isn't in the business of killing his children. And that's true. He's a God of infinite love. But here is where the enemy of our souls blinds our thinking, blinds our insight, convinces us of something that's wrong. The third chapter of Genesis, you will remember that that's the thing the serpent did. When he came and brought up the subject of the fruit, he said to Eve, he said, he's holding something out on you that is good and that will make your life richer. He really doesn't want you to have what will give you pleasure and delight and wisdom and position. He's holding out something good. And most of us have been brainwashed to where we really believe that. I'd just like to say tonight, I've been a Christian for 41 years. I want to say I've never gotten any evidence in my personal dealings with him that that's the kind of person that he is. That's not the kind of person that he is. If he ever makes a demand, it's because he wants to do something good for us not because he wants to do something that will hurt us. Now, you know, if I were to ask you if God were brighter than you are, you'd laugh at me on that score. If I ask you if he were brighter than I am, I know you'd laugh. Because we know that God is wisdom. Now, if God is wisdom and knows better how to run my life than I, and if he's divine love and wants my well-being, why should I be afraid to trust him? Now, if he's stupid and doesn't know the score, then there's a reason why you should not give your life to him. There's a very good reason why you should not give your life to me. Because that's what I would be. I don't know enough, and I'm too stupid to take your life and tell you how to run it. No man can tell anybody else. But you see, in his infinite wisdom, he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows me better than I know myself. And he loves me, and he wants my life to be happy, there is a relationship between happiness and holiness. You read the book of the Revelation and it's in heaven where all the singing takes place and all the rejoicing. It is in God's will that there is the greatest joy and peace and satisfaction. And he loves us and he's wiser than we are. Our, in, our minds are not only finite, but they're fallen. And he is eternal and he is all wisdom itself. And any command that he ever gives to me or any direction is really the wisest, most intelligent thing that I can do. Now, that gets very close sometimes and gets very personal. I know that uh, many times you see that you're in that stage where you're picking a life companion and you see that other person and you say, that's exactly the person I'd like. He's handsome or she's beautiful, or whatever it is. 
And then as you begin to walk with the Lord and as he begins to speak to you, he says, wait a minute, you should let me make that decision. And immediately we say, Lord, I really think I'm pretty competent at that point. I really think I know what I want. And he says, I'm sure you know what you want, but it may be that I know what you need. And it may be that what you want will not be a gift of love three years from now, but it'll be an albatross around your neck. And the one that you need that I will give you will be three years from now will be the joy of your life. Then's when it gets personal, isn't it? And then is when you can find out whether you trust him or not. Then is when you can find out whether you really believe that he loves you, that his will for you is good. And then is when you will, can really find out whether you really believe that he's wiser than you are. It may have to do with your life, your life calling, your vocation. You say, I know exactly what I want to do. And the Lord may say, I know what you want to do, but I have something else that I want you to do. Now, does he have something different for you that he wants you to do just because he's mean? No. He has something different for you that he wants you to do because he's good. And he wants you to put you in the, he wants to put you in the job, in the vocation that you will enjoy, that you will find fulfillment in. And that when it's over with, you, you, you will say, I wouldn't have done it differently for anything. Now, the place where he calls you to serve may be a ticklish one. Because, you know, some people say, I'm perfectly willing to be a preacher if I can be pastor of the biggest church in the conference. Or I'm perfectly willing to be, uh, you know, a missionary if I can go where I want to go. Or I'm perfectly willing to be a school teacher, an educator, if I can... I'm perfectly willing... We have our own qualifications. Let me say again, the test of whether you believe that he's good, that he's divine love, that he loves you and wants your, well, your, your best, and to believe that he's wise is when you say, Lord, it may really not look like much, but if that's where you want me, I know that's the best place for me to be and the most fruitful. And you know, after 41 years, I believe that. I've never found any evidence in my life to the contrary that where he leads is the right place and what he leads you to do is the right thing. Do you know the story out of East Stanley Jones' life about when he was a student here and he was called to lead a student volunteer meeting and he uh, prayed about it, and he had great ambitions for that student volunteer prayer meeting, and he asked God to give him one person called to the mission field out of that student volunteer meeting. And so uh, he attended, he led that student volunteer meeting, and when it was over with, there was one person called to the mission field, and it was E. Stanley Jones, to his surprise. And then he sat down and wrote his mother and told his mother that God had called him to the mission field. And she wrote back and she said, this is very strange. You know that I am ill. You know that I'm sick. You know that I'm helpless. And now you talk about leaving this country when I'm your responsibility and you're supposed to take care of me. And God has said that you're to honor your father and your mother and I'm your responsibility. You can't go to the mission field. And so he got that letter and it shook him up a bit. And he went back and got down on his knees and said, Lord, what, are you, what, what about that? 
And the Lord said, I want you to go to the mission field. And he said, what about my mother? And the Lord said, that's my problem. I want you to go to the mission field. So he wrote to his mother. And his mother was very distraught. And she wrote back to him and said, it's very obvious that you don't love me. It's a tragic thing when a mother has a son that doesn't love her. And now you don't love me, and it's bad enough for me to be an invalid like this, and now you are treating me this way. He kind of let her just tore his heart out. He got down on his knees and said, Lord, what about that? And the Lord said, I want you to go to the mission field. And he, with great heaviness of heart, sat down and wrote to his mother and said, Mother, it isn't because I do not love you, but it is because Christ has to be first in my life. He is the Lord, and he is God, and his call is on me, and he won't let me go. It's not that I don't love you, but it it is the fact that he must be first, and I have to go. E. Stanley Jones' mother got the letter, read it, and at first she was angry, and then she began to think about her anger, and then she was guilty, and then in the ministry of God's Spirit she was penitent. And she began to ask God to forgive her for her sin. Beautiful thing is that she got well. And Dr. Jones said, my mother would have died an invalid if I had not obeyed God. But he said, God put me through all of that and put her through all of that so that she could be freed from the idolatry of her heart. And she came to the place where she said, I want God's will for my son, and I want God's will for my life, and if it means losing my son, I give my son to God, and when she gave her son to God, God gave her health back to her. You're not going to outgive God. God knows what he's doing. He's divine love, and he's infinite and eternal wisdom. And when you walk into his will, it may look all wrong. But when you look back at his will, you will see that it is eternally right. Now, there's a third thing. If I were to ask you if you believe that God is all-powerful, you'd say, of course, he is the only one who is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. He is the sovereign God. And yet somehow deep in, in you and me, there is an unbelief. The same kind of unbelief that believes that somehow he wants to hurt us The same kind of belief that somehow if we obey him, it'll be a big mistake. There's also an unbelief within us that says, he can't take care of me if I get out on the end of that limb where he wants me to go. And you know, I'm convinced that that's the reason the scripture says that unbelief is the greatest of sins. And you know, it's not an act. It's an attitude, isn't it? And attitudes are usually more difficult to deal with than acts. You can repent and to some extent make restitution for acts, but what are you going to do with an attitude? And that's the reason that it takes the grace of God, it takes the work of the Holy Spirit working in my heart to purge the unbelief out of me so that I can begin to trust him. And then as I do, let him nurture that faith to where I dare to believe that yes, from the human point of view, it'll be disaster. Looks like it'll be disaster. But if that's what God wants me to do, I know that He can take care of me. And you know, 
I don't think you ever know whether you really trust him until you've stuck your neck out far enough that if he doesn't do something on your behalf, you're in trouble. We're not talking now about theoretical discussion. I believe that in every person's life, God speaks and leads them in such a way that there comes a day somewhere where if he is obedient, he has to expose himself. And he gets his neck stuck out and he knows that if God doesn't come through, he's done. You know, this is one of the reasons that I have enjoyed reading Christian biography and it's, a, it's always exciting to me to see people, the great ones, who do stick their necks out for God. When I was a, in high school, I read The Life of C.T. Studd. If you haven't read it, that's one you ought to read some Sunday afternoon. You can do it in a Sunday afternoon. Your life will be different. You'll never think quite the same again if you read it. Same as with Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. But uh, C.T. Studd, when he was 54 years of age, was a physical wreck, and he had come home from the mission field because his health was gone. He was walking down the street one day, and he passed a theater, and if I remember the story correctly, on the marquee there was a sign that said, Cannibals want missionaries. He said, I suppose they do. But he stopped to see what that show was, and it wasn't a show, it was a missionary meeting. And a man made a passionate appeal for Christian missions and for Africa. And nobody else seemed interested in volunteering, and old Charlie stood up and said, I'll go. And he went to some of his business friends, well-to-do people, and told them that God was calling him to the mission field. And they said, good, Charlie. If you will just get one medical doctor to indicate to us that you're well enough to go, we'll send you. He said, good. So he searched for a doctor who'd approve him. He couldn't find a doctor that would pass on his health anywhere. So he finally had to come back to his business friends and said, the doctors won't okay me. They won't clear me. They tell me I'll die before I get to Africa. And they said, well, that's too bad. We're sorry. We appreciate your passion, and we would have loved to have supported you. He said, uh, I understand that, and I couldn't ask you to do anything now, but you don't think I'm going to stay in England, do you? And he spent the last 17 years of his life in Africa. I had the privilege of, of, of visiting with Norman Grubb, whom I mentioned last night, who was his son-in-law. And Norman Grubb spent uh, most of those last 17 years of his life, I think 13 of them, if I remember correctly, with Charlie Studd. And he said, what a character he was. He said, every two weeks, every fortnight, the mail would come. So that's what they lived by, the money that was in the mail. He said, it was always a ritual when Charlie Studd would open the mail. He said he'd rip off the end and shake out whatever was in it and look at it. If there was any money in it, he said he'd, he'd yell. He'd say, hallelujah forever. God knows what a bunch of grumblers and complainers we are. He sent us something to keep us quiet. He said one week, one fortnight, there wasn't very much there, and he shook it up, and he said, Bless God. Hallelujah. He said, He must think we're growing in faith. He sent so little to us this time. And said one fortnight, there was nothing. Just nothing. He said, hallelujah forever, we're in the kingdom already. For in the kingdom, for in the kingdom there will be neither eating nor drinking, but righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost. 
And Norman Grubb said to me, that's the way you live. That doesn't mean that we're to be presumptuous. It means that we're very, we must be very careful to get his direction. But when his direction comes, if he's calling you, he's perfectly capable of taking care of you. Now, there are many of you that are students who've already learned that. That's what you, that's what you demonstrated when you came to college. You wouldn't be here if you didn't believe that. Well, let me say, you know, I have found people who could trust him for material provision who couldn't trust him with their lives. I've seen people who would trust him for material provision who had spiritual reservations about turning their lives totally over to him. I want to say, if you're thinking he can't take care of you, you're wrong. The reality is that you're safer in the center of his will, no matter where it is, than you are anywhere else in God's universe. The three Hebrew children were safer in the fiery furnace than the king was outside. And Daniel was safer in the lion's den than the men were outside. You will remember that the three Hebrew children were a lot safer in the furnace than the fellows were who threw them in, if you know the story. The only safe place is when we've taken our toe off the bottom and put ourselves in his hand. Now, what difference does it make? There are two things. The first from this passage in Mark, you notice what he says. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. But what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And that's what the issue is. That little thing for which you cling instead of surrendering totally to Christ is enough, no matter how small it is, to separate you ultimately from Christ. For what shall it profit a man if he gained the whole world? There are not many of us that are going to gain the whole world. The strange thing is that most people sell their souls for an infinitesimally small part of this world. And Jesus said, but if you could get the whole thing, it'd be a bad deal. And it would. Or what shall a man give? What could a man give in exchange for his soul? It's the most valuable thing he's got. And what he does with it is the only serious question. Whosoever, therefore, shall be ashamed of me. And you know, I think Jesus psychologically had his finger on it. Do you know why most of us don't surrender and yield our lives wholly to him? We're just a little bit ashamed. It isn't easy to step out and go to the altar in front of your friends and buddies. It isn't easy to take your stand in society. It isn't easy to be identified publicly. You notice what Jesus says. Whosoever, therefore, shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him shall also the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angel. Now listen to his language. What telling language. 
He says, are you going to let what an adulterous and a sinful generation thinks keep you from the way to heaven? And he says, that's the crux. You know, I read this for years without ever noticing that. He says, really? Are you going to let what an adulterous and a sinful generation thinks? And so oftentimes, it's what the other person thinks that keeps us from surrendering ourselves totally to him. 